morning for your spirit here the weight of your presence your glory Lord you're so meek so unceremoniously you just you just you just come without a fanfare you're, you're here so mightily powerfully this morning so much so much weight upon your heart, pregnant with blessing for us, I pray. Give us blessing of utterance to fetch what you have to say to us this morning. Help my vessel, help me break me again. I want to be broken before you. I want to treat your word as holy, to take it as, as holy, not to be adulterated, not to be, not to be tampered with. But Father, help my vessel to be Lord, worthy this morning and faithful to speak your word with your help by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 14. Praise God. Good morning to you. Good morning to everyone. Thank you for being here this morning. Amen. Do you still love the Lord? Okay. Romans 14, verse, um, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but what? Righteousness, right? And peace and joy where righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Praise God. It's not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, it's peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Um, praise God. So it's, if it's righteousness, we know um, peace. So, amen. Um, so the way I'm seeing this this morning, praise God, is the kingdom is righteousness. Amen. The kingdom is righteousness. Praise God. It's righteousness and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. Praise God. It's righteousness. What? It's righteousness and righteousness in where? In the Holy Ghost. We know, of course, that peace is righteousness, right? Um, in the book of Romans, just some few chapters before chapter 14 in verse chapter 5, right? Verse 1. Romans 5 as well, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, so justification here means what? Being to be justified means being made righteous. Um, it's 
when you say something is justified, um, it's not just a justification here. It's not just a maybe a declaration. You can see that where you say, ah, okay, he's been justified, so it means he's correct. But it's not just that. Justification here is more than that. It's saying what is the what produced the justification. So you can see something is justified, but it's justified because of its inherent form or its inherent nature. Praise Jesus. And this is the second side of, um, I'll call it redemption, that is vague. It's almost elusive to Christians. Oh, a lot of us Christians, it's been elusive for a long time, but thank the Lord for emphasis on the word of righteousness and the salvation of the soul, right? As it's showing that um, salvation, you know, there is a sense in which you say it's justified by Jesus or by faith in Jesus, right? Which is like just, you believe in him, he did something for you. And we know he shed his blood, all of that. He did something for you to make God see you a different way, in a different light. And there's a way you can capture that as justification, that based on the blood of Jesus, that Jesus, the Lord, God, the Father, sees you a different way as justified, which is true in a sense. But... Practically, we then have all these problems, which is that a lot of us, the so-called justified people, live in sin and we have all manner of issues. Things in our lives that don't look like the Lord, doesn't look like Jesus, doesn't align with his own life. Praise God. And if we are weak-minded concerning the Bible, the things of the Spirit, we will just say, okay, we've been justified. God sees us okay. And that's it. And we are doomed to live with our weaknesses. But that is just, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Praise God. That's not what the gospel, it's not the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel is that God doesn't want to keep looking at a sinful person. <laughs> right? And see them as righteous. Amen. It, that almost makes God seem like, seem like God is handicapped to do nothing about sin. And it's almost, in, in that kind of view of the Bible, it's almost, it's, it's almost interpreting man or sentencing man to a kind of destiny of almost a kind of condemnation. It's like saying man is married to sin forever. He's married to sin. And all God could do was to do some kind of thing in his son to change how he sees man, even though man is still sinful. Praise God. And there's a sense of sin which is inherited. In a sense, we say, through one man's disobedience, sin entered the world. And man also, and sin, death came through sin. And the Bible says that death passed upon what? All men. And so all have sinned. We get that sense. But we both know, you and I both know that 
Sin is not just an abstract thing to you. That sin is something you do. Do you understand that? Am I lying? Oh, am I speaking a correct language? As a, and you know that you're born again, and as a Christian, that being born again, even though we know in God's eyes you're justified, but we know that it didn't stop all the sins, that there are still things we do that clearly we know this is sinful. I know we feel bad about it, we feel remorse, but it doesn't take away from the fact that we have things that are weaknesses, as Paul was describing in Romans chapter 7, that there are things that I would rather do, but I could And at that time, Paul, I believe he was already born again. Yes. At that time. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Romans 7 verse 15, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do not, I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is what? It is good. Praise God. He's talking about consent, about the law being good. For when it is no more, it, then there's no one I that do it, but sin that does what? Dwelleth in what? In me. Now, this is very tricky. This is where a lot of people make all kind of, you know, fumble a lot. You know, someone will say, okay, it's not me who is sinning, really. It's, <laughs> it's who? Sin, as if sin is, a, is a, an animal who possessed you. And you, no, it's you're, you're still the one doing it. When he says sin that dwelleth in me, where does sin dwell? He's talking about a, a, a marriage, a clinging to the nature. That it's actually sin cannot operate except through you. The same way righteousness will not operate through you. I think in chapter, um, chapter 5, right, it was saying that um, those who have received the, the abundance of grace and what the gift of righteousness shall do what? Shall reign in life. Let's see that quickly in chapter 5. And we'll come back to the beginning, but let's quickly see this verse. Praise God. Let's see verse 17. He says, Romans 5, 17, that for if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, that much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall do what? Shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So he's saying you are receiving the abundance of grace and of the what? The gift of righteousness. These things they are speaking about here gift of righteousness that will make a person, you see, it has an effect. The effect of the gift of righteousness is not just how God sees you. He's speaking about, when he says reign, reign means, he's talking about reigning in life, means that there will be an impact of the gift of righteousness, that when his soul has received the gift of righteousness, what will happen? It will begin to change the the, the way of how they live. It will not be a, a, an abstract, conceptual, it won't be a cliche that we are justified with Christ. Like Paul was saying, that I'm crucified with Christ, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ what liveth in me. And he didn't, he didn't stop there. Now, if he said that, we, we can say, okay, Christ liveth in me, we will say it's maybe still figurative. It's born again, Christ is in me somehow. But it's clear that this has a kind of manifestation that because of Christ living in me, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and did what? And gave his life for me. Praise Jesus. Glory to God. You know, it said also that Christ died for us, that those who live should live not unto themselves, but unto what? And that he died for all, that's 2 Corinthians 5.15, that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and did what? Are you saying this? Talking about living. When it says that you should live a certain way. Right? It's not, it's not a figurative thing. It's not an abstract concept. There's a spiritual thing that happened in terms of justifying you in your spirit. But when it comes to your life in your soul, what you do in your soul, the gospel, there is a part of the gospel that applies to bringing that justified life into expression in the flesh. And actually, without that aspect, Christianity is not complete. Praise God. Do you see that? So therefore, being justified by faith, Romans 5, right? Verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice where? In the hope of the glory of God. So what I was saying to you is that peace also is righteousness. What he calls peace is right. Romans 14, right? That um, the kingdom is not meat and drink, but righteousness and is what? Peace and what? And joy. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. And peace, like I said, is righteousness. But peace is not righteousness in a figurative sense or, or just in a legal sense. Peace is talking about righteousness in an effectual sense. That when a person has peace with God, you can't separate the life a person, the soul is living from that sense of approval before God. Do you understand me? You can't separate the life you are living from approval before God. You can't say, Jesus has done everything, so I'm completely approved. It's actually not true. If that was the case, I guess, um, if that's the case, why do anything? <laughs> right? Why, do I, why even go to church? Why, why try to live holy? 
why try to live righteous? Praise God. We realize that after preach, after um, Jesus left, he left a gospel. That's what he appeared to Paul concerning on the way to Damascus, right? He was teaching Paul. He had his, all his own 12 apostles and many disciples, hundreds of them at that time, probably thousands now, because after Acts chapter 2, like Pentecost has happened, the Bible says they were added daily. On that day alone, 3,000 souls were added. So I, be, I don't know if they were in their thousands who, were, who kept being added. The church had begun to multiply, broke into you know, meeting house to house and all of that daily. So the church, there were many, the Lord Jesus had a lot of people who, and the Bible says they were continued in the apostles' doctrine, breaking bread from house to house. Praise God. So, so Christianity was, um, amen, had kicked off. But the Lord Jesus himself, not in a vision, himself, he came down, appeared to Saul of Tarsus, and began to speak to him in Acts chapter 26. Praise God. Amen. Amen. I know we all know these things. I'm trying to create a background <laughs> for where we are going to today. Amen. It says, at midday, Acts 26 verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining around about me and them we journeyed with me. Verse 14, and when we were all falling to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Verse 15, and I said, who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those what things in the which I will appear. Means that Jesus said, I promise him, this will not be the only appearance. I will keep appearing unto you. And verse 18, 17, delivering thee from the people, from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee to do what is verse 18. Now open their eyes. Are you seeing all of this? Say open their eyes. Now, this is not a vision. This is not Paul reading a book. This is, not, this is the Lord Jesus himself coming down to Paul, telling him that I'm making thee a minister. Now, do you see all of Paul's letters from Romans? What was the last one? Thessalonians. Praise God, Second Thessalonians. All of Paul's letters where, where if you read the letter, the work of the Spirit in those letters is the fulfillment of this commission which the Lord gave to Paul. And he said that one of the main thing here is opening their eyes. Are you seeing that? Opening their eyes, turning them from what? Darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive what? Forgiveness of sins, and then what? Inheritance among who? Them which are what? Sanctified by what? Faith that is in me. So this inheritance and inheritance among those who have been what? Sanctified by what? Faith. This is not getting born again. Someone who is born again, you need this. Like you need this 
being sanctified by what? The faith. This, what Paul was, the Lord Jesus was telling Paul here, is part of what Paul was saying when he said, the life which I now live, I'm living by faith of the Son of God. That faith of the Son is what Jesus Christ was referring to here as faith that is in me. And what we began to see is that this faith that is in me is something very, very massive in terms of its curriculum and its the ingredients, the dividends, all the things that are in the faith. Actually, Christianity, the journey of Christianity is an exploration of all the things that are that a person should have access to through the faith that is in Jesus. As at when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, Peter didn't know too much about this faith that is in him. Praise God. He saw Jesus do miracles and all of those things, but that faith that is in him is not miracles. Jesus did not mention anything about miracles here. What, what the faith that is in him is for, is for to make people receive an inheritance among them that are sanctified. So he's talking about the inheritance which sanctification brings to a Christian. And so if you're born again, you're not sanctified. The word sanctified means to be made holy. Did getting you born again make you holy? If you want to lie, say yes. <laughs> if you say, okay, it wrought some kind of holiness, I agree with you. Right? Even the idea of living for Jesus is a kind of holiness, but that's not all of holiness. And if that's all of holiness, you don't need church. All you just do, you, get, get, you just get baptized, then we just go into evangelism ground, all of us, to go and win other souls. But that's not what it, in the New Testament, church was instituted. And the reason for church is where you bring people who are born again to learn the reason why they got born again. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? And the church is where the nature of Jesus is being impacted into the, the, the saint who is now a Christian. Do you understand that? It's where what the nature of who? Of Jesus. Because getting born again is the quickening of your spirit. Then after getting born again, they now give you something called the Bible. Begin to learn about the life you now have. Begin to learn about, in that life you learn many things. One of the things you learn is this sanctification that will now bring you now. So sanctification is a preparation, a qualification for greater inheritances in, the, in God. Praise Jesus. <clears throat> you may receive forgiveness of sins, inheritances among them which are sanctified by what? By faith that is in me, praise God. So this faith, you're now seeing part of what in, in, in this faith, the summary of what is in the faith is, are the things in the Holy Ghost. Or 
what the faith will deliver to you are the things that are where in the Holy Ghost. And we know that the things in the Holy Ghost, those are the things that Jesus actually, when um, Jesus came on the scene, you know, when he began to minister, there was a kind of a weight of um, ministry upon him, that there are things I need to bring all these people into. And he began to speak about them in different ways for the purpose of the scripture to be written. And, you know, we've seen that already in, okay, if you go back to the earlier part, maybe when John met Jesus, how he was introducing Jesus. Remember in John, um, during the baptism time, he was saying that, um, I indeed come and I baptize you with water, but there will come another person who will baptize with what? The, the Holy Ghost and with what? And with fire. Baptized with the Holy Ghost. So Jesus really is a baptizer. Uh, we know Jesus did not baptize anybody with water, of course, in the natural. And we also know that Jesus didn't conduct the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did he do that for, for anybody? While, I mean, while he was still walking, before he died and resurrected. The only time we saw Jesus really speak about the Holy Spirit in terms of a ministerial way was when he appeared to the disciples after he had resurrected. You know, there were, there were rumors going around. We saw him, we saw him, we saw him. And they all gathered, you know, in the room and they were all questioning them. Who knows, maybe the doubters were there. <laughs> all of them, praise God. Who knows whether Thomas preached a message on that day. You know, Thomas had an, a DNA of doubt. And, and, you know, he doubted that resurrection thing. To the least, he said, no, how can someone who died like that raise them and all? And then Jesus just appeared into the room. Praise God. And, you know, he spoke to them. He told Thomas, he put his hand, verified everything. But one thing Jesus spoke, the Bible says, he said unto them what? Receive ye the Holy Ghost. That's the first time Jesus said something like that. Remember, before that time, Jesus was speaking to them about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. He said that that Holy Spirit is with you, but shall be in you. So with, with them, of course, I believe he was speaking about himself, that by himself being with them, the Holy Spirit was with them. That's John 14, you see it? That I will pray the Father, and he shall, he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Now, when you hear the word comforter, comforter in the Bible, by definition, means an abider. Actually, it's an abider. A comforter is someone who, who abides. And comfort real comfort that they are speaking of here cannot come from something that's external to you. If something is external to you, God doesn't call it comfort. Comfort in the scripture means an abider, something that comforts you from within. So Jesus Christ was a comforter, but he was not yet their comfort. He, he was standing with them as a comforter, but he wasn't their comfort. But he spoke at this time of another comforter. And that 
comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, right, is the one who will abide. He's, he, he's the comforter is the first person who will comfort Christians from within. And he said that, I will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the word, the spirit of truth, whom the word, the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him for he dwelleth with you. It's clear that these people did not know the Holy Spirit as a separate entity from Jesus. But he said, you know him because he dwelleth with you. And we know who dwelt with them at that time was Jesus. Are you seeing that? So Jesus was almost telling you, I'm here, I'm with you. But if you really look at me, you will actually see that there is a, another being who is present with me. And furthermore, he will know that if, you, if, you know, if you're knowing me, you see, it's actually difficult for you to know, not know me, to, you to know me and not know him. The same way it's difficult for you to know me and not know my father. You know, he said that in this same John chapter 14, earlier, I think, was it this chapter? Earlier, I said, have I, have, you be, have I been with you? John 14 verse, uh-huh, verse 9 says, Jesus said unto him, have I been so long with you and yet has not known me, Philip? And he that had seen me had seen the father. And how sayest thou then show us the father? Two things. So you see Jesus here. You are seeing the Trinity in this place. <laughs> Praise Jesus. And so uh, what Jesus was actually trying to tell them is that the Trinity is actually being ma- is manifest with you. As I myself am with you. But it's clear they had, when it came to the aspect of the Father, I, I believe they had a lot of difficulty seeing the Father in Jesus. Because it was, very, it was almost an impossibility for you to see the Father in Jesus without some kind of quickening, without some kind of help. You know, that's why they were to stone Jesus. The moment he began to speak about the Father, I and my Father, we are one. They say, no, 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 you are going, you are good. We've we've been enduring you for so long. You've said a lot of heretic things. You've been insulting Moses. You've been in, but this thing you've said about your Father, your Father, God, making himself equal with God in the book of John. Immediately he said that. They said, no, we can't handle it. Are you seeing that there's something, and all of these men, these disciples of Jesus were all Jewish guys, who had the same orientation. So one thing that they had a serious, I don't want to call it mental block, I want to call it maybe spiritual block or something, to conceive a method in which God can have a son. Whenever you hear birth, born, son to a Jew, they, all they can think about is just physical... Uh, birth, they couldn't conceptualize any other kind of birth than that. And that's what Jesus was trying to teach Nicodemus in chapter 3. 
of John as well. And Jesus, Jesus expected him, you are a teacher of the Jews, okay? Can't, can't you understand this simple concept? He came to him and said, at night, as a rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. A teacher, not, not son, teacher. That's the best a Jew can accept. That God can send a prophet, God can send a teacher, praise Jesus, Hallelujah. but not a son. And when he called Jesus teacher, Jesus knew this is your limitation. And, and when Jesus was looking at Nicodemus, he wasn't just seeing Nicodemus, Jesus was seeing all the Jews. Because this was a teacher of the Jews. I know that if you have this problem, all the Jews have this problem. And, and this is his speech to Jesus. You know, it, it, there's almost something, um, I, I don't know what it was about Jesus, but he was, I don't want to say sensitive, but he was a little bit particular about people's perception of him. And I, I, have, I think I have an idea why. Because you can't receive more from him or what you can receive from him is limited to what you receive him as. And that's one thing about Jesus, one thing about the Holy Spirit, one thing about the Father. If you, if you receive the Lord as just the person who justifies me symbolically so I can go to heaven, and you are still committing sins, you will never have an answer to your sin. But if a Christian receives the Lord as somebody who has grace to remove sin in a practical way, if you receive him at that way, such a person, after some time, you begin to see sin, you begin to, t- to, to be dealt with in your life. The, act, the actual truth is that with God, nothing is impossible. But we tend to say that when it has to do with getting money, getting a job, getting a husband, getting a car, getting that job, getting that promotion, getting, we believe that for everything but being like him. When it comes to that aspect, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> the Lord, uh, you know, God is God, we, we are men. The Lord Jesus knows our weakness, so he died for us, our weakness. We are all weak. We can't be like Jesus. It's like, it seems humble. We are all very humble. We can't be. Jesus is the only perfect man. It sounds very righteous, you know? Who am I to aspire to God's kind of righteousness and holiness? Who am I? I'm just a man. Jesus is the only righteous man. So let him be righteous for us all. Let's keep sinning. But, but be ye holy, even as your word. Now, was that a figure of speech? Was that like um, just an, you know, a rhetorical something that you just try and be holy, but you can't really, are you getting what I'm trying to say? And this is one thing I, I found in Christendom, praise God, is that in, in Christendom, we've believed many things in the Bible, we believe a lot of things. We've gone through different moves, different eras, different seasons of the gospel. What we believe, there was a time people couldn't even believe in divine healing. People didn't believe that. If you once you're sick, you're sick. They believe that divine healing was for the time of the apostles and co. It's not in our day. There was a time people couldn't even believe to receive the Holy Ghost. 
They didn't believe that you can speak in tongues, that speaking in tongues is for that Bible time. God had to begin to restore these things back. It took centuries. After a while, people could believe that the Holy Ghost can come into you. You get what I mean? And those who believed that initially, they were, some of them were driven from the church. You are mad people. How can you just stand What kind of thing is that? <laughs> Strange. But they dared to believe that these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, they will cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They dared to believe that. And what happened? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Revivals. All kind of things began to break through. Because they, they chose to believe the scriptures as opposed to what was culturally acceptable or expected or believed in the Christendom. Because of that, they're able to push themselves into a new experience, which is clearly written in the Bible, but which the church has been so weak to agree with and to carry as an expectation. Same thing with divine healing. The healing, when the healing movement broke out, that time it's just some men who dared to believe. The signs that follow them that believe, right? That you shall lay your hand on the sick. That's Mark chapter 16. And they shall recover. If there be any sick among you, let him come to the elders of the church. Right? That's what, was it um, J- um, J- James? Yes. Let him come to the elders of the church. And what did he say? Pray. Take this, let them take the oil. Pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Praise Jesus. It says the prayer of faith will save the sick and God shall raise him up. There was a time that this was not believed by a majority of Christians. But people were able to say, if it's in the Bible, it's possible. Amen. Now, now what the word of righteousness is saying now, is not saying that we believe God for many things, but there's an aspect we've not really believed that the Bible speaks about in very clear terms. Which has to do with what? Salvation of your soul. Not just being a, a, an abstract, symbolic, a spiritually legitimate concept. But a, a real thing yes. where a person can be conformed. You know in the book of Rasa Romans put it very clearly. You can't change those words. Right? Say those who he foreknew, Romans chapter 8, that he predestined. When it says you have been predestined for something, it's a very clear term. What is the meaning of predestination? It means that you should end up here. Do you understand that? Predestination means that you should end up what? Here is a destiny of Christians. That those whom we did for you, which includes you, 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 and I, if you are a Christian, you are, you are included in this foreknowledge. That he did also predestinate to be conformed. You can't change the words. It is conformed. The word conformed means it has to do with a, a reformation to a particular standard. That you should be conformed. So this word here implies change. The change they're talking about here is not a change that should happen in God, which is what we support Christianity to be, which is how God sees you just changed. No. I'm not saying that there's no no that aspect. That's also true through the blood of Jesus. 
But this is talking about change that should happen in you. That you should be conformed into what? The image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many. The firstborn among many brethren. Now, what is this image of a son? If you ask, what's the image of the son that you should be conformed into? Hebrews chapter 1 explains that image. God, who in sundry times, in diverse manners, speaking time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has now in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all, of what? All things, by whom also he made the walls. Verse 3, who being the brightness of whose glory? That's God, right? That's that verse 1, God. And he's the express image of his person. And upholded all things by the word of his power. When he has sat, he by himself purged our sins. Then sat down on the right hand of what? The majesty. So this Hebrews chapter 1 is introducing Jesus as the image of God. It's not just the image. They call him the express image of God's person. And we know we can't separate ourselves from this because even Genesis 1 speaks about that. God created man in his image and after his likeness. And as daddy was teaching when he was here, um, he explained to us that when you look at the Hebrew, you know, Genesis said, in let us make man in our image and after our likeness. I'm sure you can go back and check your own study that that, that word, our image means a kind of a shadow. A shadow means some kind of representation. That's not the exact thing. It's a shade. The Greek word of this image is like a kind of shadow of something. But it says, but likeness means the exactness. Likeness means that it's almost like the exact. It's almost like a replica. So image and likeness are not the same. So when he says, in our image, it's fairly clear that man was, is a kind of a shadow of God. It's, you have a soul, you have a will, you act according to your will, you're a spiritual entity. God is like that. That's a shadow. Adam, when he was made, was like that. But when he says after, after means pursuing our likeness. That the genesis of man is not the, the end of man. Actually, this image and likeness speaks about the genesis and the destiny. Praise God. Now, and what we realize is that when you now look at the Hebrew of this likeness, the word, the definition of likeness, the word they use in the Hebrew, it is now, it is the same meaning of the word translated image in the New Testament in Greek. Like that Hebrews chapter 1. So really, image in, in Hebrews 1 is not image in Genesis 1. Because image in Genesis 1 is shade. Something that's, uh-huh, it's like a shadow. But what the meaning of image in Hebrews 1 is what likeness in Genesis 1 means. Likeness means exactness. That's why he calls it the express image of his person. And this man who they are speaking about here 
was a young Jewish guy born in, in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth. Like you, he did the thing, he, if, I don't know, maybe they don't play soccer back then because soccer wasn't invented, but whatever they play, he played your kind of play as a child. He did all the child, he was, he was a man. And that was the whole point of it. Jesus was not only a lamb of atonement. He was also a lamb of example. Or he was also a lamb of pattern. Do I make some sense to you? In other words, the reason why the Lord raised Jesus, did all those things he did, came to Abraham from Genesis, made promises to him, made him walk a certain way, promised him a seed called Christ that Paul was speaking about in Galatians chapter 3, that his promises was made unto Abraham and his seed, not seed as of many, but seed as of one, which is Christ showing that that was God's intention. Right? He said the scripture, the scripture foreseen, that's Galatians chapter 3, that God will justify the hidden through faith. First preached the gospel, that's Galatians 3 verse 8. The scripture foreseen that God will justify the hidden through faith. Are you seeing this through faith? We mentioned that, that there are many things in faith that are there for Christians. Many things, and we have not, and I think progressively over the centuries, the Lord has been bringing some of those things back into the church. Amen. But there are some that the church, we have not yet been bold enough to see as an expectation or actually as a dividend or as the Lord spoke to it, to Paul, as an inheritance among them that are what sanctified by faith that is in me. And he's saying here the scripture for seeing that when it says scripture, they mean the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God is the author. When you see that the scripture is like, is a work that came from the mind of the Holy Ghost. Right? Even we, saw, we see that in the book of Peter. Right? He said that, that he said no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Private interpretation means by yourself. It means in seminary school. Private interpretation can be in a college of theologians. There are many, but to God, it's still private. I mean, let's say the God and say, let's interpret the Bible. But his spirit is not there. To God, that's private interpretation. It means you are trying to interpret my thing. You didn't write it. You, it's not, you don't have the, capa- the capability, no matter how many you are, to actually get the right interpretation of what's in there. And so what he calls private interpretation here means interpretation without the mind of the author, without the, the, the person who actually wrote it being involved. He says, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were what moved. It means every person whose words came into the Bible did it not by their own will, but they did it through a movement of the Holy Ghost. That tells you that the Holy Spirit for span of centuries was writing the scriptures. Moving men. 
That's why I love different aspects. When you go to Bible school, there are different ways, rules and all that, how to interpret the Bible. Do it this way, check the context, do it. There are many things like that. Thank God for that. Awesome. A lot of those things are the Lord even inspired them for the purpose of safety for Christians so we don't take things out of context, so we don't, you know, aha, praise God. But the truth is that the accurate interpretation of the scripture must be brought by the Holy Ghost. Any interpretation of the Bible that is not spirit-inspired is wrong. It's not a storybook. And it's not a book where you say, this is what the English means. The English means this, and the English means, or you go into the Greek and say, no, no, the Greek said that you're trying to imagine what what was a Greek man in so-and-so time when the Bible was written. What was the context of a Greek mind at that time? Why did they choose? That's not where the interpretation is. A lot of times, if you want to know what the verse means, there are like five other verses who need to come together through the revelation of the Holy Spirit to point to another verse. Sometimes those other five verses which must come together were written in, in centuries apart by people who didn't know each other. But the content is coming from the same mind, which is the mind of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the things our generation, we must not fall into foolishness of cerebra, academic, all of those things. To think that the scripture is a book that you interpret by just literal skill and all of that. You need the spirit of God. Now, I want to think about it. Look at your Bible. Like, look at this book. You see how small this book is? I've read books that are bigger than this. Right? I remember, I remember when I was reading the biography of um, John D. Rockefeller, just a guy who lived some time ago, a very rich guy, right? It's the book about his life. And not even everything about his life. It's just his business dealings, some of his convictions, you know, things he believed. The book is weight. It's like twice this one. Some of you, your Bible is even smaller than this. <laughs> Do you get what I mean? So now imagine a book about just a man who made some money just some aspect of his life, how many pages they had to write. And after reading that book, you still don't feel like you really knew the man. They just spoke about a few things concerning him. Praise God. Now, how can this book tell you everything you need to know about the creator of the universe in a literal sense? It is literally impossible for this book by literal reading, to say everything you need to know about God. There's just not enough words. (laughs) With the person who made the trees, for example. Now, how many books have written about trees? If they want to stack all the writings and information about these trees, how trees feed, how trees grow, you fill this room with all kinds of books, and we haven't scratched the surface about understanding a tree. Now we're talking about the mind who made everything that is. And you're telling me that you can literally, in a literal way, know him by what is written. There are not enough words here. 
It's very clear that the scripture is an instrument. Yes. It's an instrument, it's a coded instrument that is trans through over centuries that by the movement of the Holy Spirit that said, let these words be arranged a certain way. Even at the time they were bringing, let's say the King James Bible, when they were, they were translating it, because from Greek, all of those things, even when it was canonized, what books should be in the Bible? What books should not be there? Do you think the Holy Ghost was absent? The Holy Ghost. Some people feel like, okay, this book is not enough. The other books that were written, Book of Enoch, Book of this. No. There's something about the Lord, amen, amen, who has given us this book. Praise God. And the only way to know God through the Bible is through inspiration. And when the scripture is being taught by inspiration, the proof of it is not in the grammatical prowess or this intellectual prowess of the reader in how he can explain and interpret it. The proof of the scripture is also in the movement of the spirit. And the fruit which such interpretation bears in the souls of men. Do you understand that? Because now, like I was saying before, that is the answer that Jesus gave when they asked him about false prophets. He spoke about false prophets, false teachers. Who is a false prophet? A, a false prophet is anybody who come and say God said this when that's not what God said. So false prophets include those who interpret the Bible with their cerebral mind. Because they are supposing their interpretation to be what God said. But the Holy Ghost can be standing aside and say, look, man, <laughs> that's not the thing. That's the false prophet. And Jesus, the Lord said, by their fruit, you shall know them. What is the meaning of fruit? Fruit means a tangible spiritual thing that begins to appear from the soul of a soul who receives the seed of God. And the seed of God are not memory verses. The seed of God is, uh, is spiritual. Do you understand what I'm, as I'm speaking to you right now, by the grace of God, I'm very convinced that there's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to cast his seed in your heart. But, but, but the seed you will take home will not be the verses we read. Because you can read those verses, commit them to memory, and go home with nothing, without any seed. Amen. Thank you. Shemara Hester Glory to God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Worship you. Worship you. Bless you. Bless you. Amen. Hallelujah. 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 One thing I'm very convinced about is the Lord seeks to magnify himself in the church. The Lord wants to 
to come. You know, he said that Jesus was saying that, that the time has come in, and now is when he called them true worshippers, right? If they are true worshippers, they are also fake worshippers. Or when I say fake, I mean not true. True is in the sense of the right alignment, the right way. God is not someone you worship how you think. It is a way you ought to worship him. You know that's the way he's been right from the beginning, right from time, right from when he manifested himself, when he came to Moses, you know, after the nation was raised in Israel, right, they multiplied in the land of Egypt. Then after a while, he brought a man through by his wisdom out into the wilderness to learn things for 40 years, train Moses. Then one day he told Moses, he encountered Moses and told him, go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go, that they might come and serve me. That was service, it's worship. So literally, Israel as a nation left Egypt. They were coming to the wilderness to worship. And we saw right from that time, when God raised a nation who, and that's what Israel is. Israel is a nation whose destiny is devoted to worship. Like they had, it's a nation with a profession. That of all the nations of the earth, who of all their gods, God wanted to raise one nation to himself. And that this nation should master the art of what it takes to worship me. And we saw that right from when the Lord began to manifest in the wilderness, that God never left worship open-ended. He didn't say, hey, Moses, go and have a meeting with all your elders, and you know, when you, however you decide to give him some worship, do it. No, he took him to the, he told them, go and tell every Israelite, prepare yourself. In fact, I give you three days. Do all you can. Don't go near your wives. Don't do anything. Just prepare yourself. For, I will appear on the mountain. Amen. And when I come, I will come to encounter you so that my fear might be in you. But we know they couldn't come. But when Moses was able to go to God, we saw that what God brought was precepts, ordinances, specificity. That if you want to keep me in your midst, you want my manifest glory, my manifest presence. I know if I ask you to build a house, there's a way you would think to build it, but that kind of house you will build will not be a house my glory can stay. If you want to keep my glory, my presence among the nation, this is the kind of house you build. He began to give measurement. The cloth must be this size, this dimension. This is how you make the cloth. You make the iron this way. You rear the cord, the instruments. This is how you do it. And the Bible says, Moses finished the house at the end of Genesis of Exodus. Once he finished, as soon as he did it, and he said that, the Lord told him, see that you build everything according to the pattern that was showed you in the mount. As soon as he finished the house, what happened? The glory of God descended in the most holy. That thing, and we know the Bible says, these things are a type and shadow, right, of that we should come. Praise Jesus. That will also tell you that in the spirit, worship is specific. When, and when I say specific, this is what I mean, that worship must be by revelation. Worship must be by what? Revelation. Anything you do for God that God did not reveal to you came from your mind. And if you, 
It came from your mind. It's a speculation. It's, it's like, God, I assume you like this kind of thing, but hey, history, but history, everything has told us that when men decide to do something and they think it's good, be afraid. Because in a, in a man or in the flesh, the Bible says, dwelleth no good thing. God said the carnal mind is enmity with God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. The best thought of a man falls short. That's what makes man, man, and God, God, is that he said that my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thought. It's not that your ways sometimes will be my ways when you, no, it's never. That man doesn't have the ability, that's what sin did to man, that the imagination of the thoughts of his heart are what evil continually. That means that, imagine a man who thinks in himself, this is good, that's evil, I will not do the evil, I will do the good. What they are saying is that that good which he seems is right, there is a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end of that way are parts of death and destruction. Are you getting what I'm trying to say? That's what Jesus was pushing back against when that rich young ruler came to him and said, good master. I said, hey, don't call me good. What did you say about me that you call good? If God has not washed your mind, you have no concept of good. What you see in me as good, I assure you, is not good at all. Because Jesus Christ knew that that man was not seeing him with the eyes of God. And he proved it later. When Jesus now revealed to him what good is, the Bible says he went away sorrowful. He can't endure that, sell all my goods and give it to the poor. In his mind, it's like, if I sell all my goods and give them to the poor, how will I keep doing my good deeds? Because, (laughs) do you understand what I mean? To him, that is financial power was how he was doing his good, giving to the poor, giving all kinds of things. You know, he has his allocation for the poor already. He already has his allocation for the poor. It means he gives alms. He's a religious guy. Jesus asked him five things or so about the law. He said, have all these things that I kept from my youth, proving himself, Jesus, check me out. <laughs> is there anything? I've tried. I'm sure... That guy must have been watching Jesus from afar. You know, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of sinners, so, and this guy, to him, is not a sinner. So, he would say, look, who are all these guys around Jesus? That one's tall. I know that one. He's a crook. The other one has two wives, and he has ten concubines. And, and he's watching all of them around Jesus, and Jesus is not angry with them. Jesus is laughing with them, eating with them. So what kind of thing is this? He's told him, these are not the guys that should be around Jesus. He's someone like him. So one day he summoned up his courage and came. And then, you know, he, he tried to conjure up the language of the elite. Good master. With his boldness. Well, Jesus began to deconstruct that thing and said, no, you are not good. All these things don't make you good. Because it's clear that that, that that man has never received any revelation before from God. He 
said that my thoughts are not Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. He said, as far as the heaven is from the earth. Do you know how far that is? Have you measured it before? As far as the heaven is from the earth, so are my, my thoughts from your thoughts and my ways from your ways. Some people don't like this kind of thing when you say this kind of thing because it's almost, it's almost seems as if you are diminishing the, you know, the value of man. You are diminishing you know, that you know, man should, God made man a thinker. God made man, you know, all those kind of things. Ascribing what to man? But that's not the Bible. The Bible doesn't ascribe anything to any man. The Bible says all the righteousness of men are filthy rags before him. There is none righteous. No, not one. Do you understand what I mean? That, that the, every righteousness must be revealed. Revelation is the only way to get righteousness. Revelation means it didn't come from your mind. Right, that the Lord Jesus, through the movement of the Holy Ghost, it came by revelation. It hit your heart. Wow, this is the right thing to do. Praise God. That was Paul's gospel, Romans chapter. Thank you. See, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He said, For it is the power of God where unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for you see this gospel now, what is, what is the, the ingredient of the gospel that makes it the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes? It's because therein is the righteousness of what? Of God, what? Revealed from, that faith to faith means from one experience of faith from one dimension of faith from one encounter of faith to another encounter of faith are you seeing this faith to faith means in that thing that Paul called faith, I'm sorry Jesus called faith that is in me to Paul, those inheritances among them that are sanctified by faith that is in me is actually a, a, a great landscape in the spirit of many things which I will call, I call them righteousnesses. Righteousnesses. Praise God. Hallelujah. Which a soul must come into from faith to faith as it is written. The just, the word just here is the same word we saw in chapter 5, right? Verse 1. It is written that the just shall live by faith. What it means here is that there's, there's no justification really outside living by faith. This living by faith is not that God sees you with a justified eyes. No. We're talking about how you live. How you live. How do you live? Praise God. So if you're living by faith, right, and the just shall live by faith, we know that what is in this faith that makes faith powerful for living is revelation of righteousness. So you can also see here that the just shall live by the revelation of righteousness. So this is what Paul was saying. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Now, see that word. I love that word. Yet not I. You say, Paul, what do you mean? I know you. You've been here since. 
You're the one living. Why are you trying to say someone else is living? I saw you. Yesterday, you are the one doing everything. He said, but he said, yet not I. So it means this way of living is different from just looking at someone doing something outside. Paul, maybe, maybe Paul and his fellow tent maker, who is a troublesome fellow who never believed God, and who is not a Christian, who doesn't believe all these things, but they are both in the same profession, making tent. And that one is watching Paul. You're also making tent, I'm making tent. So I'm, I'm using this example, not because it's not Paul's preaching now. We're using just tent making, which is something that Paul was doing. So do you, do you know that Paul can be making tent by the faith of the Son of God? While the other guy is making tent by his own wisdom, by his own strength. What, you say, what do you mean by that? It's not tent making. It's not just nail and hammer. And, and he, are you saying that he's hitting the hammer by the faith of his son of God? <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> hereby, I hereby hit this nail by faith. It's not in, in that. What I'm trying to show you is deeper to see the eyes that sees justification in the spirit. It takes a kind of spiritual enlightenment for you to see justification. When you begin to speak about being justified, you now begin to realize that, that te- when you see someone making tent every day, showing up, he's focused. Tent making. He's sure very early. Everyone comes late, he comes very early. Are you seeing that? When God is watching that, God likes, okay, you are making tent. That's not what God is looking at. To God, nothing in this world means anything. Everything will be, will be burnt up with fire anyway. So this world is a transient place. So when God is looking at the guy making tent, God is not looking at the nail and his hammer. He's checking his soul. He's very devoted to tent making. Everyone is clapping for him. God doesn't see that. He says, well, where is that, that devotion coming from? You know, I discovered that everything that everybody is doing is flowing from something. And we can be doing the same thing in the physical. Why you are doing it is different from why you are doing it. It's when you move the outer layer of what men are doing and try and, if they can give eyes to see, and that eye is what God has. That's what separates God from men. That's why don't be happy when everyone is clapping for you. Oh, you are doing well. Be afraid. Because all men, men look on the outward. But God, God's job is to look on the inside. He tries the heart. God takes men's heart. He has his balances. He weighs hearts of men upon his balance. When he's weighing your heart, he's not seeing what job you do, your profession. He's checking their hearts of men have impulses. They are, they are things in which, in where the heart transacts. For example, hope. What is his hope? Then the, God can check what is the motivation. Do you know someone can, they, so, two people can be doing the same thing, uh, right? One person is doing it because of, from a place of pure obedience as a servant 
to the Lord. As a steward of himself, a steward of his household, a steward of all that, he knows that like Paul would teach that he that doesn't work, let him not eat. You know, you know that Paul actually, he actually described in the epistle why he was working. Do you know that? And he, and he says, for example, you must work so you have enough to give others. Number two, you must work so you shouldn't be a burden. So you should, are you getting what I'm saying? Now, someone, Paul can be working for all those reasons, which came, must have come by revelation. They are instructions of the Spirit. And him, his own body, himself, being a servant, being a steward, is applying himself in that as an act of obedience to what is being revealed to heaven. That's one way of working. So when he's hitting his own nail, that's, what he's, that's what's pushing Paul. When he's hitting his own, his own tent making. Somebody else now can be doing the same thing, but it has nothing to do with all those things, don't be giving to others, being a burden, not being a burden to others. He's not doing it by obedience because no one spoke to him. He doesn't obey. He's the king of his own life. Right? He's the king of his own man. I got man. I got this. Is, in fact, this tent making is just the beginning of my empire. He's seen... Tent empire, a global empire that's going to blow out of this place. Ha! As he's hitting that thing, Kai. He's thinking of people who knew him from his village, who, who, who maltreated him and said, You will not be anything in this life. And he left the village with a passion. I'm going to prove to them that, you know, and, he's there, and they are both hitting the same nail. Are you getting what I'm saying? It got nothing to do with God, God's will, being his son, not. And he's just, are you, are you seeing what I'm trying to say? Now, are you, telling, are you seeing how when God looks at those two beings, they are two different things entirely? God is not looking at how well you'd eat. If that guy might even be a better tent maker than Paul. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Now, 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 now. Praise God. Hallelujah. Now, are you seeing the concept of justification by faith? Are you seeing that? That what is faith? The faith that is in Jesus. And, and these are all the things Jesus was teaching while he was on earth. These were the teachings of Jesus. Jesus never taught miracles. Maybe one chapter or so. Maybe Mark 11. Just teaching the general principle of faith. Right? That if any of you shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, cast into the sea, will not doubt in his heart, but believe that whatsoever he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. And when you stand praying and all of that, he just taught, he taught those things. But the, the teachings of Jesus, the focus of Jesus' teachings, especially when you read the book of John, was Jesus was trying to draw an attention to something that every man on earth is focused about external things. They are focused about what? External things, not on the natural, things that manifest on the natural. But Jesus is saying, that's not where it is. Even in the temple, righteousness is measured because 
The New Testament hasn't come. Justification by faith has not been introduced. The concept of being ju- a man being justified in the spirit was not being introduced. So everything was external. You feel like you're a sinner, you need to atone for your sin. Get a goat or a sheep or a ram, take it physically. Everything was outside. The Pharisees built their own sect around that. They had their own doctrine. They paid tithe of a cumin. Tiny cumin seed, they divide it into ten places and take one. That's their, to them, that's their righteousness. Standing in the street corners, praying, shouting, God of heaven. Everybody's afraid. Hey, we can't pray like this. You know what I mean? And every time they came to Jesus and asked him a question, or they, they, had, they had an objection to something he did, it's always about how it manifests. Today is the Sabbath day. Why do you heal somebody? Can you imagine? That's what those guys were angry about. Then Jesus, had, Jesus, was, was, Jesus was like, what is wrong with you guys? Why are you angry that someone was healed on the Sabbath day? It means you can't see anything beyond outward laws. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not conscious of the thing. Amen. At some point, Jesus Christ did a miracle. You know that miracle of the cripple who they brought in through the roof, right? Jesus healed him. Then when he woke up, right, he now told the guy, is that your sins are forgiving you or go on, something like that. And then he now began to marvel how, how did he heal the cripple? All they, were, they, were, they were arguing about him healing the cripple. Then Jesus, now, uh, you guys are not really okay. You're not, so you see, I healed this cripple, and you are all arguing about it. But you, nobody even noticed that I told him about his sin being forgiven. What is a harder thing to do? To heal a crippled man or forgive his sin means you guys are all dull. You are spiritually dull. You are not sensitive to the things that matter. With that is easier, that's Luke chapter 5. That when Jesus perceived the authority and answering unto them, what reason ye in your hearts? Whether it's easier to say, whether it's easier, is it to say that the sins are forgiven thee or to say rise up and walk? Verse 6, is there anything? Sorry, 24. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy couch and go. I you seen Jesus' explanation here. That this encounter was not really about this guy arising up. It's really about me forgiving his sins. That the greatest thing that happened here today is what I just said to him. Your sins are forgiven you, but you didn't realize that that's the greatest thing because you don't see anything about sin. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? Praise Jesus. So, one thing that, this is something that a lot of Christians, a lot of us in the Christendom, with all humility, I'm saying this, and I say all of us, I didn't say, I'm not excluding myself, that we've all been blind about is the concept of justification by faith. When Paul was speaking to Timothy, in First Timothy chapter 4, he was speaking about the mystery of godliness. Remember when he said that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It means that godliness is not as simple as Jesus died and my sins are 
forgiving me. I'm just waiting here to do evangelism and go to heaven. He said, no. The godliness is a mystery, and it's a great mystery. First, God was manifest in the flesh. Right? Then secondly, what? Justified in the spirit. Justified in the spirit. One of the things that we are ignorant of still as Christians, and which the Lord wants to really bring back to the church, is the concept of justification. The, the land of justification in the spirit. And justification in the spirit is mainly how to make men just before God. Do you agree with me? How to do what? How to make men just before God. How to make men just before God. The, what makes justification tricky is that when it comes to godliness, remember this godliness is like the godlikeness of Genesis chapter 1, which we saw. And they are telling that it is actually a mystery. A mystery means that just being non-challant, it will be elusive to you. That's what, if, it's, if not, it's not a mystery. Do you see that? That godliness is a mystery. That if a Christian will say, I want to live godly, I don't want to profess Christianity as a cliche, right? I want to live godly. I want to be like Jesus. If you say that, then what you have actually done is that you are initiating yourself into a pursuit of a mystery. You cannot have spoken a little bit about that concept of saying Christianity is simple, you know, the simplicity that's it in Christ. And I explained to you what they are talking about there. It's not saying that Christ is simple. How can Christ be simple? How? Okay, if he's simple, explain him. Say he's simple. How did he go for 30-something years without sinning? Or if you know, it's not for us to know. No, no, it's not. No, it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Why are you in church? What are you here doing? Are we here just to sing and dance and put on lights and, and go home? Paul called the church the pillar and the ground of truth. So that's why I'm writing these things to you. That you should know how you should conduct yourself. And the church, which is the pillar, is the ground. The, the ground of truth means the place where truth is excavated. Truth is, is where is the, the church is the ground of revelation. The, the church is a safe ground where God reveals his secret. To people who are inquirers concerning him. Guys who are not just in, interested in looking for and going to Mars and all that. It's not bad to go to Mars. If God permits us, we'll go, to, we'll go there. But, but it's... Praise God. It seems as though we're willing to learn everything but God. That when it comes to God, yeah, sing to him, we like that. Dance to him, we love that. 
tell others about him, what he did for you. We love that. When they now say, learn him. It's clear the idea of what the New Testament church was is different from what church looks like today. I'm sorry to say. Church was school. But in contemporary Christianity today, we feel learning Bible is for Bible school. No, for pastors. For we, let's just come on Sunday and sing and dance and then a nice... 20, 30 minutes, just exhortation. Is it? Say exhortation. exhortation. I'm sorry, I'm not speaking bad against any. I know we are, all, we are all coming from a place. And this is not the end of the church. The destiny of the church is glorious. And when I say it, I mean every single church, every single church will be glorious. And that's why, and that's why the ch- don't play with the church. Church is powerful. The most ignorant group of believers who are just born again, just let them gather, two, three. Holy Ghost from heaven will come there. You, you might have issues with them. No, oh, why are they like this? Why are they? No, they have issues. That's your own problem. One day, once they gather, he's there. So that's why I say if you have issue with church, it'd be, it'd be humble a little bit. You know what I mean? Are you, but if the Holy Ghost can be there, who are you? Are you better than the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I know that's one of the things in the body of Christ, you know. Each, each denomination feels their own way is correct. The other ones are wrong. This ones feel the other guys are wrong. But they forget that Holy Ghost shows up in that church too. Yeah. Even the guys where you feel their doctrine is bad. The Holy Ghost is dead. What, if anybody just shows up there with a heart to, to encounter the Lord, he's going to be there. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Makaran. Thank you, Jesus. Sakariara Mosoprahado, Sakario Sahara. Sapario Sahara. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Let's see. Do you have the interpretation of that? Or? Yes. <laughs> Let's hear. The Lord, the Lord is speaking. The Lord is speaking to us. Propopota, Falia, Pania, Kalia, Punia, Fatatania, Fafalaita, Falamalaita, Falakalamalaita, Prekata, Falamalaita, Pania Stavantalaita, Lekrota, Maracota, Felia Pratetania, Procosotania, Felia Stopretelia, Crentalaita, Vella Cretalaita, Grantolota, Landa, Landa, Londa, Landa, Landa, Branda Lavaloso, Brenda Landa, Landa, Manda Galla, 
for it is my creation and invention for it is even I that ordained and started the church it is even I and, and that is my place of landing for that is my place of landing it is the place where many should be added as such as should be saved so it is my place of landing it is my place of coming it is my place of washing it is my place of renewing it is my place of conforming men even into my image it is my place it is my place it is my thing it is my church it is my church and i will build my church so it is my church it is my church and i will build my church for you think the gates of hell are standing they are not standing for i am building my church i am building my church i am even bringing back the ancient parts uh, the ancient parts the ancient ways it is coming and it is by the church it is by the church it is my it is my creation it is i made it i invented it i created it for men for men and for those that are ought to be saved for even it is from the church that i will birth my chosen ones it is from the church that will birth the chosen one it is from the church that will birth the man child company it is from the church so only katania align and reposition your heart for liprahasteganta alivelegosebra for the church is going to grow and become one is going to come even into the unity of the faith even the unity of the faith and even for the work of the ministry that is the purpose that is the reason why i ordained the church for the unity of the faith and even for the work of the ministry and i have even raised men and put men and called men so honor and respect them for they are my called ones they are my chosen ones and i have sent them in capacities of light in capacities of understanding and i am yet unveiling and i am building my church i am building my church as i even built paul i am building my church i am bringing and unearthing mysteries even my mysteries even my mysteries for i am laying line upon line precept upon precept precept upon precept line upon line for the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth it is be ito tota truth will reign truth will reign and truth will abound it will reign and abound and lepratali and the church is the outstretched hand of me even to this world even to this generation it is the church it is the church so build my church i will build my church i will build my church so nanata for no church is tiny every single church is founded and standing on the holy ghost so i will build my church i will raise my church leprata and the gates of hell cannot prevail against my church amen glory to god thank you just thank the lord thank the lord for that thank you father thank you thank you lord jesus Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. God is awesome. You know, God is not like men. Men get discouraged when they see weaknesses. But when God sees weaknesses and, 
and all manner of issues, God sees it's the stage is set for him. It's, it's the stage is set for him to glorify himself. Glory to God. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, just the nature of God, there's a way he waits till the weakest hour. <laughs> he said that while we were yet sinners, when without strength, while we were without strength, in due season, without strength, in due time, Christ died. I know this thing, historically, you know, is actually true. After the era of the prophets, Malachi ended. We didn't know there was, there was no prophet anymore. When Jesus Christ came, some, I think some centuries or so between that end of the prophetic era, at the time Jesus has come on the scene, the prophetic was gone almost completely from Israel. The temple had become a place where buying and selling occurs. The priests could not even hear God anymore. God had to bypass them and go into the wilderness to speak to John in the, in the wilderness. In such a season, God has a way of, of behaving that way. Like when Lazarus died, and he, he kept waiting. He thought he would rush when they said he is sick. He didn't go. It's for the glory of God. Amen. And, and so it is. The church, at its weakest hour, its weakest moment, what will happen? That's when the glory of God the way, what the Lord is going to do with the church in, among the nations, right? even the weakest of churches will be more glorious than you can ever imagine. And that's how it will be a proof that it's not by power nor by might. As when there was time to rebuild the temple in the book of Zechariah. So that was the whole revelation. They kept trying for a long time. Cyrus had sent people, different exiles, to Jerusalem to build the temple. The temple wasn't being built. When revelation came, it, it, it really, the issue why I believe somehow the Lord was even opposing the building of the temple because they were trying to do it by their own strength, by their own devices. So he had to bring revelation. He saw the garment of the priest was filthy and Satan was standing beside him to have accusation against him. You know, when you say a priest's garment is filthy, it means that his, his separation and sanctification was not complete. He was probably doing some things with, I don't want to accuse Joshua, but I don't know what he was doing. But there were some things, probably through some blindness, he, he wasn't fully standing in his consecration. Amen. And you know, consecration, spiritual consecration, is measured by how much dependency in the spirit you have. You know, the, the arm of flesh, trying to do it by your strength, by your will, by your mind, by your intelligence. Those are pollutants. Those are filthy. Priestly life is a life. That's why they didn't give the priest inheritance among the land. No, let them, let them be sustained by God. Their profession is God. God is their sustenance, is their source, is their everything. And he has to take off the filthy garment from him, replace the garment. Then the Lord then brought vision vision of the candlestick in Zechariah of the two olive trees emptying their golden oil into the lampstand and we brought forth the headstone with shouting grace grace what is grace? grace means energy of the spirit grace is ability 
energy of the spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Shakamarosia. Thank you, Jesus. Yes. But asked of any altar for the hand of. Well, yeah, I hear the Lord say, My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. For when you are weak, you will be strong. For here there will be a manifestation of my grace. For here all that has been said to you. Now, are all to be brought about by the operations of grace. It's not by your own power. For no man can be made righteous by his own self, by his own will, and by his own devices. I'm not asking you to will it, but rather to yield to the will of the Spirit. For as you yield to the will of the Spirit, portals of grace will open up to you. The heavens will be opened up to you. For here, what is that mountain before Zerubbabel shall become a plain, shall become plain, shall become plain, not by power, not by mind, for I minister grace, I minister spirit, 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 grace, spirit unto you, saith the Lord. Thank you, Father. Oh, glory to Jesus. Glory to Jesus. Glory to Jesus. It's clear the church is going to become so beautiful. It's just that the church, we've not discovered where our strength is. That's just the thing. We try to use natural means. We borrow things from the world, devices. But there's no amount of natural device that can travel to where we're seen and to travel to this, the site of devastation of sinful nature in the souls of men. There's no way we can arrange and organize the church and try and make the Bible more relatable. It's not bad to try and do that, but I'm just saying that's not where the strength of Christianity lies. The power of Christianity is in the spirit. That's where the power of transformation is. That the church, we need to rediscover where our strength lies. That our strength is where? In the spirit. That's what I saw in my, in my spirit when I said, now I mentioned that the Lord seeks to be magnified in the church. That's what I meant. And, and when, you, when you elevate the spirit, the things of the spirit, the ways of the spirit, the ministry of the spirit, or in all shapes and form, giving room to the expression of the gifts of the spirit and keying to the ministry of the spirit fully. Minister, bringing back spiritual ministry, where we begin to raise ministers who minister by the spirit, who don't depend on the intelligence but who can connect with the wavelength of the spirit and open up doors and portals in the church for the, for the spirit of God to bless the people. The church will begin to move into its final hour. Amen. You know, Jesus said it through, I think it was that um, Ephesians chapter 5 when he was using the, the, the comparing, you know, a husband and a wife and all of that. And he was likening the church to a wife. Right? When he was saying, husband, love your wives as Christ, as Christ loved the church and 
gave himself for her. And he spoke about that he might sanctify. So when he's using it here, he's talking about church now. That he might, the reason why he gave himself for the church is not just to change God's perception about the church without any change happening. No. Which is what we've been thinking Christianity is about alone. No. The reason why he gave himself for it is so that he might sanctify and cleanse it with what he called the washing of water by the word. And verse 27, so that he might present it to himself, a glorious church. So it's clear a glorious church is not the most technological church. It's not the most technologically advanced church. It's not the church that has, that, has, that has mastered the art of marketing and branding. I'm not, I don't have anything against those things. That's not, do them or don't do them, that's your business. But I'm just saying that's not the power of the church, that, that the glory of the church are in these things he mentioned, that he might cleanse it and sanctify it. Right? Amen. That he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. You see, what is the sanctifying reagent? Is the word. That's the, so the, the word is not just something to tell you, Jesus died for you, so you are okay. It's not a storybook. It's not to deal with your emotions. and your, I'm not saying you can't do that. Don't do that alone. That's my message. That what the word is for. Jesus Christ, when he was praying in John 17, just before he left, he said, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them. Glory to Jesus. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church. Not having, you know, if he just stopped glorious church, he leaves it to interpretation. This glory, you might think that the glory is an artificial thing that will come upon the church. No, it's not. The glory must be worked out in the church by the church going through sanctification, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, nor any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. Are these figurative things that you just say? Maybe he was just happy just to pour words on it. You think they don't mean anything? These are specific landmarks. Glory to God. We saw this manifest in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter is it 18, 19. Praise God. Hallelujah. Revelation 19, the marriage supper. Right? When say, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Amen. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Are you seeing that? So it's clear that this marriage will not occur until the wife has made herself ready. She must make herself ready. If she's to be made ready, there are some things that, she, that needs to happen to her. And now, what is her readiness? To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So, if the wife is not wearing this thing, we'll be waiting for that marriage. And the Lord Jesus will keep walking. In his own times, he will begin to visit the church and visit the church. And he will begin to lay this emphasis until it dawns in our consciousness that what we think is our, the mission of the church is not evangelism. So, sorry. I'm not saying church should not do evangelism. I, I'm not speaking in absolute. 
I'm speaking in terms of to highlight priority. Right? Your car can play music, but it is not a a speaker. If you're looking for a speaker, you won't buy a car. It it does not make any kind of sense whatsoever. Now, I say play music in a car is bad. It can play music, but that's not what it's meant for. The re- is the, there's the engine of the car. It's a, it's a locomotive. It's something that moves. It's to carry you from one place to another. Do you understand what I mean? The church is not a music speaker where you go and dance and sleep. The church is a mover, moving machine. It's to move the saints somewhere. Move you from shame to glory. That sin should not have dominion over you. Because a, a, a person who sin has, you know when you say sin is having dominion over you, it means that when sin arrives, you are weak. You, are weak. you would have finished doing everything sin one before you realize I'm a Christian. Sin has dominion over you. That's a place of shame. Glory to God. But God wants to take the church from a place having neither spot nor wrinkle. And and these things, I'm not talking about being religious. You know, having a form of godliness but denying the power. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about outward form of holiness. You only wear long skirts. You only wear a certain, you don't wear makeup. You don't look nice. No, if you you dress like that, don't come come near me. I don't like, I'm I'm not into such things. Please. <laughs> okay? I'm, I'm just not into... I'm sorry. I just, I'm not saying you are bad, but I'm not into such things. I don't, I don't feel that's where Christianity is. You understand what I mean? I'm not, and it's, not, it's not like a pharisaical outward show of, of holiness. The glory of the church is, will be a church that's arrived as justification in the spirit. You understand what I mean? People who have mastered the kind of righteousness that Jesus preached. You know, Jesus, he preached, he was preaching. The Jews came with their own. The, the Pharisees came with their own. And he told them, look, like the, those who wanted to stone that woman based on their own righteousness, they've calculated, they've judged her, she's a sinner. Jesus said, all of you, you are all sinners and you know it. If you are not a sinner, throw your own stone. But even those guys who refused to stone, I'm sure they, they couldn't even see Jesus' eyes of sin. What sin is. Because it takes a kind of eye to discern sin and evil. Jesus was teaching that in, in, in Matthew chapter 6. He said, if your eyes be what? Be, be, be evil, your body will be full of darkness. If you be single, it will be full of light. And if the light that is in you is darkness. See how great how great is that darkness. Then Inalita began to teach about right, taking no thought for your life. You know Jesus is interesting. When Jesus is teaching a righteousness message where he will land is not where you think he's going to. You think he will begin to hammer the adulterers, the fornicators, those who visibly steal. Those who, you, and you know that's what the Jews were trying to get him to do. 
But those guys, he goes to their house. Why was he in their house? Because using the eye of justification in the spirit, many of them are more righteous than the ones who do not steal and have only one wife. The so-called sinners he hung around, they are not the real sinners. <laughs> the real sinners are the ones who come to him with righteousness and ask questions. I have a question. The Pharisee. So when we're talking about glorious church, it's not about all those things. Now, am I saying that those ones are not sins too? Please understand my message. What I'm saying is that they are, they are works of the flesh which are manifest. The Bible spoke in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that therefore having these promises, he listed the promises in chapter 6, right? Come out from, therefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. All of those things. I will receive you. I will be a father unto you. Those are the promises. After he said that, I will, I will be their God. I will be in them. I will walk in them. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them. So all the things you must do. See those unclean things he said don't touch. We don't know what those things are. Many of those things are the righteousness of men. What we think are, are right. Many of those things are the unclean things that he's speaking about. Those unclean things are things that men decided that these are the right things. Let's build religion around these things. But did not come through revelation. They didn't want to, men who don't, are not, who cannot subject themselves to the meekness of receiving revelation knowledge and illumination that comes by the spirit about what is right and wrong. Like Paul was saying, my heart desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record, they have a zeal for God. You can't fault them with zeal. Romans 10. But not according to knowledge. For I bear them record, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. And this zeal, every zeal manifests as a kind, a shade or a kind of righteousness. Like the kind of righteousness that Saul of Tarsus had. Modern Christians, zealous about all things, but completely ignorant about how God justifies men. Praise God. Say, for they've been ignorant of God's righteousness. I mean, God has his own righteousness, and men can be ignorant of it. And every man is ignorant of this God's righteousness unless it has been revealed to you. Say, what of us who are born again? Yes. Are you born again? Yes. But have they revealed righteousness to you? No. You are ignorant of it. Your new birth does not automatically impart knowledge of righteousness. That's why you go to church. And that's why the church must be raised to be a ground of revelation. Do you understand me? Not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves. You see this word, submitted themselves. Hey! This is the hard one for men to do. There are many things in the church that fight this revelation of righteousness because the devil knows that the moment righteousness is being revealed, that is going to end the reign of sin. It's going to, it's, it means that that's the time when the beauty of the church is going to come back. So he has done all kinds of things, configuration, attitude, wrong ideas about the church, about Christianity, to fight that conformity to such a kind of, for, 
for the church to be shaped in such a manner where the, where the revelation of righteousness becomes the central thing in the church. Where Christians can, can sit down for hours. It's not about excitement. It's a heart focused on knowing the will of God. On having an atmosphere where the righteousness of God, through the spirit, by the scripture, it takes a kind of submission. We all know that. Praise God. Hallelujah. It's like when Jesus came to Saul and told him, I have appeared to you. There are things that will still appear to you, to reveal to you. And he spoke about it in Galatians, when he pleased the Father, who revealed, who, who what? Separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. I confess not with flesh and blood. Neither did I go to Jerusalem and all of that. So Jesus was revealing things to the revelation of the Son of God. When he said the life I now live, I now live by the faith of the Son of God. It came through these experiences. Jesus didn't appear to Saul just once. The experience on Damascus was the first time. But Jesus must have kept coming. Who knows, maybe it's every day. Or, every, or who knows how frequently. But Jesus must have been coming. And based on Jesus' pattern post-resurrection, he must have been using the scriptures. Because that's what he began to do when he met those guys on Emmaus from the law and the prophet, began to make, bring forth revelation. Are you getting what I'm saying? So all Paul's epistles, of course, came from these dealings with Jesus. The sense, when you see Paul in Romans, explaining grace, explaining sin, explaining righteousness, it's really Jesus, Jesus taught him those things. Jesus must have taught him through revelation. What is righteousness? Glory to God. Now, so imagine that this guy, Paul, now having such experience, then he now met Peter, and Peter said, hey, Paul, go aside. You know who we are. We walk with Jesus three and a half years. Who are you? I, can't, I don't even trust all your, you say he appeared to you, but I don't trust such things. What else is there to say? We listen to all his messages. What else do you have to add? Imagine that. But it's clear that those people were those 12 were wise enough. What were they wise of? We are now born again. We now have the Holy Spirit in us. We follow Jesus for three and a half years. But when it comes to knowledge, Jesus actually said that I have many things to say, but you can't bear them now. But how be it when the Spirit of truth is come? There will be another era of revelation. So they, they got to a point where they had to make a decision to submit themselves to the righteousness which is of God. They brought Paul. Paul began to, in Galatians chapter 2, he was explaining it, how he began to speak, teach them those things which he received privately. They received it. it the concept of righteousness by faith, justification in the spirit. They had to receive it. Praise God. You know why? Because Jesus could not really teach those things in that manner before he resurrected. Why? 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 Because the Holy Spirit, the era of the Holy Spirit, has not come. The era of the Holy Spirit in men, you get what I mean? When he was with them, the Holy Ghost was. The Holy Ghost has been on the earth since Genesis chapter 1. He never left. 
it wasn't Acts 2 that Holy Ghost came to the earth. He has been on the earth since Genesis chapter 1 on the face of the waters. He has never left. Sometimes he will come upon prophets. They will prophesy all kinds of things. But Acts 2 was him coming into men. Inside. What Jesus promised in, in, um, in John chapter 14 where we read. He said the comforter, right? Which is the Holy Ghost. He said he is with you. But there will be a time where he shall be. And then Jesus told them, don't depart from Jerusalem until you receive him, that comforter. Because that will, it, it, so you now see that it was the coming of the Holy Spirit that gave birth to the church era. There were disciples before the Holy Spirit, but there was no church before the Holy Spirit. Are you seeing, are you seeing the point? That the unique thing, what makes the church the church is the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? And that's why they call the church this, the pillar and the ground of truth. Because this, the, the church is the ground of the spirit of truth. Like Jesus said that when he, the spirit of truth, John 16, shall come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of himself whatsoever he hears that he will speak. For he will take of what? Of mine. And he will what? He will show them. He will show them unto you. So when Jesus was appearing to Paul, he was using the Holy Spirit via the, the Holy Spirit and using the scripture. It's an, another way of knowing God. It's not parables. It's take through the Bible, the Holy Ghost will use the scripture. Law. Their scripture then were no epistles and gospels. Their scripture then were law and prophets. Like on the way to Emmaus, he said, Jesus beginning from the law and the prophet expounded everything to them. That's the same thing he did with Paul. So Paul now began to read the law with a different eye. Wow. 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 I, I imagine, imagine the day when Jesus broke it to Paul that. You see that time when I, the, the father was talking to Abraham and giving him promise about his seed. Then he now told him that that seed is Christ. How do you make such a, a leap that, that Paul made in, in, in Galatians? Jesus must have told him. Yes, it's not seed as of me. Check it, read it. It's not seed. See, it's not seed as of many, but seed as of one. That seed I'm the one is Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, teaching him the doctrine of, of reconciliation, the doctrine of grace, doctrines of sin, doctrine of redemption, doctrines of salvation, doctrines of baptism, all those things about the oracles of God. Jesus must have taught them to Paul. By, via what? It's through inspired speaking. Revelation means it's a quickened understanding. It's, it, they, they call it wisdom and spiritual understanding. That's, remember that prayer, Ephesians prayer, right? Yes, Ephesians chapter 1 prayer. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love towards all the saints, speaking to a church who have been Christians for a long time, they've journeyed in the milk of the world. Milk of the world just means you are relating with the world in a way that it's not revealing the person of God and Christ to you. But rather, it is helping you out of your babyhood. Because you don't teach knowledge to a baby. No, but you are wasting your time. They can't bear it. You only teach to a child. But when you are born again, you are a baby. 
No, no, there's nobody who's born a child. <laughs> we are all born as babies. You must drink milk. In other words, when you are just born again, they don't start teaching you about the person of God. You have to wait for some time. When you are moving into childhood, they enroll you in the school of the spirit. So that childhood phase was where this Ephesian church got to. They were babies before. There's a kind of faith towards God which they had. In that faith, they can pray for miracles. They can pray for healings. They can, all the signs that follow them that believe were active in their midst. But you see, in all those signs that follow them that believe, in Mark chapter 16, they, they didn't mention anything about knowledge there. They didn't mention about sanctification, knowing God, being transformed into his image. None of those things are mentioned there. Because that's not part of a milk. You don't teach that to a baby. When you, when you hear the prayer of a baby, God, I want this. Give me this. God, help me. Give me joy. Give me comfort. Give me that. Give me this. Help me do this. And babies also do evangelism. I'm praying for the other ones. Let them also come to know you. Awesome. Babyhood is not bad. You got everybody, we're all babies. At some point, and many of us are still babies. It's just that God doesn't want to have a baby forever. There will not be a time, like when you're raising a child, me, me, my toy, my this, they will now, how you know a baby is becoming a child? They can now think beyond themselves. Most Christians have never thought beyond themselves. They never thought, this man died for me, gave himself for me, suffered. What does he want? What is he looking for? What, is, what are his own needs? And, he, and the Bible talks about everything he wants. It's just that we are not programmed to see them. We see them with a kind of mind. We gloss over them. Like being sanctified. Have you thought about that he wants to marry you before? Should be his bride. You know, there's way people, there are all kinds of theology that, that people use. They say, no, that perfection is not individual. It's the church as a collective. So we are not perfect. When we come together as a collective, we become a perfect wife. <laughs> Amen. Have you, have you seen that kind of thing before yourself? Let's say your car, you want to drive a car, right? You now say, it's, it's okay. The tire doesn't have to be perfect. It's okay if the engine is not working well. Just let them come together. They will work. It's a lie. Those are, those are deceit. It's because our, we don't, our hearts are not strong enough. Because we have a, when you have a heart of a baby, your heart will fail at the thought of perfection. At the thought of living righteously. You can't conceive it. You will short-circuit. When such a message is, oh, what are you saying? Wow, perfection. You mean that I'm not going to, I'm going to be exactly perfect. You see what I'm saying? When you think about, and, and those are the things Jesus was saying, he said that with man, it's impossible. You know, they asked the question. When he was giving all the instruction and all of that, and hey, you know, he thought, he said that it's easier for a camel to eat such When you read this thing, you, know, you, won't, you won't wonder why they killed him. He made so much sense why they killed him. Eh? His, his standards, eh? He said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Hey, all of them say God. Oh my God. So who can now be saved? Who then? 
Then Jesus now said, let me just make it plain to you. I won't lie to you. With man is actually impossible. But say with God. With God. Now, that with God factor is the what the church is missing. When you, when you mention perfection, being holy as he is holy, Christians short circuit and begin to bring their own idea to, into the Bible. It's because we can't see how that's possible because we only know our devices. We don't have, we don't know from experience seeing the Lord take a soul and remove their filthiness. I'm not talking about trying to be religiously okay and act like a righteous person. I'm talking about where you no longer have the appetite for sin. I'm talking about where the heart of a soul become a righteous fountain. So he that believeth in me as the scripture has said that out of his belly shall flow. He's talking of the belly of a man. Jesus wasn't playing with all these things he was saying. You know, we only, we only read Jesus' miracle. We don't read his teaching. If you read his teaching, you will be sober. I mean, if you read them and take them seriously. He that believeth on me as the scripture has said, that out of his belly shall flow forth rivers of living waters. He's talking of the belly of a man flowing forth rivers of living waters. God wants to raise the church to a point where the church will begin to give life to nations. The fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 2. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be lifted above every other mountain. The world, after a while, they will get tired when they look at the church because righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. He said, All nations will flow into it. They will say, Come here, let us go to the house of the Lord, to the God of Jacob, who will teach us his laws. For out of Zion shall go for the law and the word of God from Jerusalem. Glory to Jesus. Oh, glory to God. Hallelujah. Amen. We need to begin to round up now. We should be out of here in 10 minutes. Amen. We were somewhere before this. There's something inside my heart I feel I didn't conclude. Amen. Thank you, Father. Praise God. We're speaking about justification by faith. Yeah. Praise Jesus. So the church era came after the Holy Spirit, right? Yes, sir. And the Holy Spirit, this purpose, like Jesus said in, Mark, in John 16, is that he said he will take of what is mine and he will reveal them to you. And that's one thing they brought through Paul. And then that Ephesian church, Paul got to a point where he said, I've been hearing of your faith and your love. It has spread around. You have some kind of fruit of love. right? But that one is the kind of love a baby shows. Do you understand? It's not the love of seriousness. For the major part as Christians, we've not gotten into the serious end of Christianity. Which is not about what God will give you and what God will do for you. It's what God wants to make you. Because you belong to him. He has a use for your soul. The actual use for your soul is that he wants to abide with you and in you. That was John chapter 14. My father's house, there are many mansions there. Right? If we're not so, I would have told you. 
But I go there to prepare a place for you. And when I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. See, I will receive you to myself. So that where I am, there you may be also. Not where I will be, where I am. So he was there at that time when he was talking to them. That you might know that I am in my father. My father in me. Then, but I in you. That same chapter 14, he was teaching, Jesus was teaching the mystery of abode. There's actually a final eternal picture of abode. Where you are in God and God is in you. But God is not going to be in any filthy thing, man. Check how the Bible ended. Check how the Bible from chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 19, right? 20, 19 was talking about the marriage and all of that. The wife who they made ready. Then you see 21, they saw that wife again. Carried me away in the spirit. Showed me the lamb's wife. Like, she was like a city coming down out of heaven from God. They call her the holy Jerusalem. That's the lamb's wife. That's where God's tabernacle will be. Are you, are you understanding what I'm trying to say? Everything here has nothing to do with you, your car, your house, your job, your career. All those, I'm not saying those things are bad, but that's not the purpose. Of, that's not why you are saved. Those are the things like a baby. A baby is crying for their toys, my this, my that. But when a child becomes serious, they begin to think about the business of their father. Right? Which is... The father, is, he walks on souls. Because souls are pre- precious. Every soul is, a, I'm not talking about your spirit, your soul is a precious entity to God. What makes it so precious? It can accommodate him when it is raised as a temple. That's that Second Corinthians chapter 6, that I will be in them. I will walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Some of, these, some of the different things we've not, because we've not looked at all these things seriously in the Bible, there are some things we've, we've mixed together generally in Christendom. Number one, we have mixed the concept of the Holy Spirit being in you with the Son of God being in you and with the Father being in you. We assume that they are all the same. You see someone say, I'm born again, therefore Holy Ghost lives in me. We say that. Then tomorrow you say, I'm born again, Jesus lives in me. I'm born again, God lives in me. They're not all the same thing. We just mix everything because lack of understanding. We've not sat down to learn the Bible by the Spirit. If they're all the same, why would Jesus spend a chapter of John 14 making demarcations between himself, his Father, the Holy Ghost, making difference between him being a comforter I remember when you say him being a comforter and the Holy Ghost, you say no, because he was there physically. So he's talking about when he goes, he will no longer be. No, no. Because after some time, he now said, after the Holy Ghost has come, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Then he now went further and John 14 began to explain more about how they are coming. If a man loves me, he will keep my words. It is he that loves me that keep my words. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father. Hey. So you now ask to say, what of those that don't love him? And those who don't love him, Christians will be there. Don't say all Christians love him. Don't kid yourself. If your wife loves you the way you love God, you would have divorced her since. 
Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Imagine that you marry somebody just doing their own thing. They don't even think that all you have to them is a ceremony. Let's say you're married to a wife. She doesn't think about you only on Sunday morning. My husband, my beautiful husband, I love you. She sings all the songs about you and everything. And then after that, <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I'm <laughs> that's the way we do to God. When you try to talk to her about your stuff, <laughs> she just, I know you are a complex man. You, you, are, you have many things. I know. I, you see me? I'm weak. I can't deal with all your many businesses. I have my own thing. That's how we treat God. Whereas God is a gift of knowledge. God has really, to a man, God has no real other significant purpose than to be known. To be known. I'm not saying believing in him. That's nice. That's the doorway to knowing him. Knowing God. And the truth is that anything you don't relate with in the, in the mode of knowing does not register as being real to you. It can't register as reality to you. God has to be known. So he said, if that he that has my commandment, that, those commandments are actually revelations. They're talking of his precepts, his word. Read Psalm 119. Look at David's attitude concerning the word of God. The precept is something. And God said, this, this kind of man, I have found David, a man after my heart. Saul was different. Saul was concerned about ruling kingdom. All those, uh, say, this man is after my own heart. When you read Psalm 119, you understand, ah, oh, okay, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense. That's why, that's why, that's why God said that about David. Imagine, that's the longest chapter of the Bible. Oh, how I love thy law. That law is not um, do's and don'ts. It's talking about God's ways, his, his, how his mind thinks. Your precept, your statutes. Yes, they are my meditation. I'm fascinated by your mind. I want to know you. God. God said, that's the kind of man I am. In fact, God began to say things about David. Right from that time, when David's heart shifted into that kind of place, when you, they began to use the throne of God became synonymous with the throne of David. God just named me. He said, my throne is a David throne. <laughs> he calls it there's not something that was not invented. It's not even invented. It's just maybe renamed for understanding. A, a kind of a mercy he has. He called it the sure mercies of David. It's actually a mercy of God, but it's, the, it's a mercy that somebody who is like a David becomes their own and is sure for them. Do, do you get what I'm saying? That's God magnifying a heart that pants, a heart that can look around this whole world is all its complexities and technology and say, God, with all these things, you are the one who is worthy of knowing. I'm not going to treat you like a cliche. I'm going to sow my life to learning you. I'm going to move into the school of the spirit to learn you. That's what Jesus was speaking concerning here. That John chapter 14, right? 
that is, look at, let's read again. He that has my commandment and keepeth them, is he that loveth me. That's how you know you love God. You keep them. And he that loveth me shall be loved by my Father. Now, this is another kind of love. This is not the love for all men. It is the love for them that love him and keepeth his commandment. It means something. Love is not a feeling, emotion. Right? When you say, okay, I love my husband, that's one thing. I love my daughter, that's another thing. It's not just feeling. When we now go inside your love for your husband, how it manifests. The, inside that love, there are commitments. There are things that are like covenants. There are all kinds of, it's deep. That, you know, called, that is a different thing entirely from a love for a child. That love for a child has its own things in there. It's not just a feeling. So when, when he said that, he said that, is he that loveth me, right? And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father. It's, it's, it's a love that, that is in this kind of context of knowing each other. And I will love him. I will then love him. And I will manifest myself to him. So you can be a Christian and it's not manifest to you. Then let's go on quickly. I want to go in two minutes now. And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, if, 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 hey, if a man love me, not all men love him more. How you will know if they love me is they keep my words. Keep. They keep my words. My father will love him. Then eventually we will then come unto him. And make, does this thing sound like something that every Christian has? When they're using if, it's conditional. Not all men are doing this. So you can't tell me we are all the same. The measure of God you have is not the one I have. It's not the one. We are not all the same. This should heal that delusion that we have about people being sent by God. God can raise a man in a generation because a lot of people in that generation are not willing to go through the kind of dealings he's willing to go through. So, but the, for, like when God raised David in Israel, how many Davids can you find in a nation? Maybe there might be two others, I don't know, but there, there can be many with his kind of heart. Now imagine God raising David, for example, and then an Israelite just said, no, are you the only one? Why would he just come and rechange the whole worship? You know, he came and he brought the ark back. The, the no more holy place out. He just made it a tent. Instead of knife, he gave them instrument. Sing before God. Change the whole mosaic something. Power. Nobody could stand against him and say, who are you? Moses gave us this thing. He was David. That guy has dealings with God that you... Man... You, <laughs> So there, and that's something that will begin to come. There will be sent ones. Listen, I'm talking like Paul was a sent one. Yes, sir. Not everybody, who knows, those apostles they might not be able to take Paul's own kind of dealing. You understand what I mean? And so our generation must be sensitive to sent ones. What I'm talking about, this thing called justification in the spirit, the same way it has happened with every previous visitation. When God was bringing back 
baptism in the Holy Ghost, bringing back doctrine of divine healing, bringing back all kinds of things, restoring them back to the body of Christ. God always has sent men to generations. Others are wallowing in their own thing, but some guys will arise. And so this is what the Bible says. There will be workings in their life to put them in a place where they can receive such a revelation for the body of Christ. And we must heed to that thing Jesus Christ said. We must learn to say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus. Praise God. Justification in the spirit. Thank you, Father. Without justification, or what we call justified by faith, is the same thing. You can't have peace with God. And there's this peace, and then it's what we call access into the grace in which we stand. Amen. Thank you, Father. So that Ephesian church, amen, as we're closing... Right, chapter one. The prayer Paul began to pray for them. He said, After I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love to all the saints, I never cease to then pray for you. So that was a baby church who had excelled in babyhood and they've shown signs that they can begin to get mature. Which is one of those signs that all the other believers began to commend them. Those guys, wow, they have excelled in the faith. And he began to pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul, right? The Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He was praying for the church. A church that already has a good report. Who knows what their good report looks like? They are very nice. They they, are accommodating. They take care of strangers. They know how to pray. Results come. They know how to believe God for their needs. All the things with milk Christianity. But doesn't have to do with him, him, him. Paul now began to pray for them. There's furthermore, there's more about Christianity. I began to pray. He will grieve unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Not knowledge of how to make it, how to get things done, how to be a good this, how to be a good husband. Not that. Knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. So that you may know what is the hope of his... means you've not known this thing since. You've been a Christian for some time. You've heard of your faith. But you've not known the hope of his calling. It's one hope of his calling. And what the riches of the glory of what? His inheritance. So this was the, what Jesus told Paul that he would be a preacher of. So it means that some of these churches, Paul established them. He went away. They, be, they were babies. They began to excel. But he has not preached his calling to them. The message Jesus gave him is not for babies. This was a season later when they need to begin to learn about what God, his real message, which has to do with this inheritance. Remember I told them that you might receive an inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith in me, that riches of his glory inheritance and then the exceeding greatness of his power to us all who believe according to his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Are you seeing what was wrought in Christ? And set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, so on and so forth. Amen. Praise God. Uh, this, today's message is very simple, right? This is a very simple message. Very simple message. It's just calling our 
attention back to the, the basics, the core. When we're teaching about justify, justification in the spirit, right, is that that's the place, the ground where the Lord has designed that Christianity must move from a place where we do things for the approval of men to a point where so that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering, be made conformable to his death. For that knowledge, he counted all things to be done for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Amen. Just begin to pray to the Lord and just speak to him in your own way. Just speak to the Lord in your own way, in your own way, in your own way. Let your own heart speak to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Our Lord, we honor you this afternoon. We thank you. Thank you for your word, your holy word, your righteous word. Thank you for this emphasis again, Lord, bringing to our remembrance things which you have said and been saying to us. Our Lord, our Father, let this be beyond, be beyond just words. Holy Spirit, we ask that take it now and begin your own private ministry and speak to our heart in our own native language. Convince us concerning all these things and show them to us. Make it more clear to our soul. Lay the emphasis in our heart. Oh God, I pray, Lord, for every soul, everyone now, under the sound of my voice, I ask in the name of Jesus, Lord, as many who are weak, weary, about to give up, even concerning the pursuit of righteousness, because it's not easy to stay on the pursuit of the invisible and to keep going and searching for invisible things. But Father, I pray, let there be a release of your strength, so that your strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. I pray that turn every dependency on our own ability, turn them, Lord, into a dependency in the Spirit, to rely upon the Spirit, to depend on the Spirit, to lean into the Spirit. Open our ears so that we can hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Thank you, our Father. Keep us in brokenness, in meekness, in humility, O oh God. For to this man will you look as of a broken heart at a contrite spirit, he had a trembles at your word. Thank you, our Lord. Let it be a release of grace now. Release of grace that can bring about the shift, the transformation that this world is meant to wrought in our soul. Let it be so to everyone under the sound of my voice. Thank you, our Father. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Receive all the glory, our God. Glorify yourself. Glorify yourself. Thank you, our Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Shine forth. You dwells between the cherubim, shine forth. You dwells between the 